Production, definitely. We can do that. We can do that in urban spaces. We've done that in urban spaces for millennia, um, I think, is another thing that we have to really be thoughtful about, too. Uh, nothing is new in terms of urban agriculture. Um, people have been growing food in cities since the beginning of time, since the beginning of cities, anyway. Um, and this is not a new trendy thing that we're trying out here. This is how poor people the world over have been feeding themselves um, and increasing their food security um, for, for since ancient times. Welcome to the Real Organic Podcast. I'm Lindley Dixon, co-director of the Real Organic Project. We're a grassroots, farmer-led movement with an add-on organic food label that distinguishes soil-grown crops and pasture-raised livestock. You just heard from Onika Abraham, who has so much more to share with us about the history of urban farming, not only for food production, but also as a mainstay tool for community justice. Before we dive into today's episode, we want to thank you for subscribing to our podcast and ask you to visit our website, realorganicproject.org, to become one of our thousand real fans. Our movement is small but powerful, and if you're interested in keeping real food on your table and in your local stores, we'd love to have your help and support. Now let's get back to the conversation between myself and the executive director of Farm School NYC, Onika Abraham. Thank you, Onika Abraham, for your time today and for being here. Um, Onika and I met a little over a year ago it was at the Real Organic Project Symposium at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. And you I can't gave a speech. I believe it's been that long already. It doesn't feel I know. like that Yeah, long. the one this year got canceled, so that's why we're here. And, uh, <laughs> but your speech there, um, I've listened to it a couple times, actually. And I've listened to your speech at Keep the Soil and Organic Rally in New York. Hmm. And I just want you to know, I think the world of you. I think you're an amazing voice. You speak with such eloquence and clarity on really important issues. And um, one of the lasting messages that I have from the talk that you gave was about the importance of sharing our stories. So I'd mm. love to hear today about all the stories that are important to you and maybe how you ended up becoming the executive director of Farm School NYC. Yes, so blessed. <laughs> blessed to be that. Um, sure, I'd love to share a story, my story. Um, I feel like I need a little bit more of a prompt though. Like how far back are we going? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's up to you. Um, I, maybe, maybe a great place to start would be when you first had the inkling that you might want to farm. Okay. Oh. Well, I mean, I was brought up by um, two people, two parents here in New York City. Uh, I was born and raised um, in a high-rise building, uh, big concrete, surrounded by um, concrete, and just very much a city girl. But both my parents were brought up on farms. Uh, my mom was brought up uh, in Alabama, in rural Alabama, and my father was brought up in St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, so both of them were rural children um, for the most part. And um, I was blessed enough to be able to go and visit my grandparents on their farms when I was growing up. So um, I always, uh, from an early age, just had this Ah, this attachment and this excitement around people who were growing food. And in particular, my maternal grandmother was just a fascination to me. I mean, she, I didn't get to know her until she was in her 80s. And at that point, she was still farming. She had a huge, what looked to me as a, you know, a New York, a Manhattanite. It looked like a huge kitchen garden. Um, and it still is huge by, by urban standpoints. It's about, it was about probably a little less than an acre. 
Um, and she grew every single thing that her children ate, um, including like corn for grounding, for to making cornmeal out of, um, all the poultry, all the eggs, um, basically everything except for wheat, which they didn't grow um, in, in Alabama at that time. My grandfather was doing all of the row crops. You know, he's the one who had the tractor and actually, according to my mother, the oxen and the mule, I, you know, she was brought up in the 40s, so it was a very different, you know, standard in terms of um, how he was doing that kind of production level farming, but he grew soy towards the latter part of his life and, um, and cotton, um, but my grandmother fed everybody. Um, and she, I remember when I was very young, um, she, her, she brought in this box, a cardboard box full of little chicks, um, that she brought, they'd just been laid and she brought them into her bedroom for the night to just kind of keep them warm. Um, and as a little kid, I was like, oh my God, look at these adorable things. And I think at that time, I really did fall in love with the idea of farming. Um, from the level of farming that my grandmother did. And I think what the beauty of it for me was, um, and I don't think I could have articulated it at the time, but um, there was so much self-sufficiency in that. Like the security of being able to, to know that you can feed your whole family without a penny in your pocket you know, no matter what happened in terms of like, are we going to get the loan for the USDA, to, you know, to get get this tractor or, or whatever, regardless of what was happening with my grandfather's farming business, my grandmother knew that she could feed her entire family um, and half the, you know, half the community as well, you know, through bartering and exchange and kind of working together with mutual aid. So um, I always that like that was landed in my heart as a child, and I will never forget that. Um, and I aspired to that in some ways, but I don't think I really saw it as a career path until much later, much later in life. It's so relevant right now with COVID when sometimes the store shelves were empty. And, you know, my family's like, you know, what are we going to do if people start raiding the farm? You know, <laughs> we kind of joke about that. But um, yeah, I think for the first time this year, people are realizing how fragile our food system is. Have thing change, things changed at Farm School NYC? Yes, a lot has changed at Farm School Well, first, School tell, NYC, us, tell so us about it. What the hell is that thing? Uh, so Farm School NYC is... Um, an education program for folks that want to learn about sustainable agriculture through the lens and with the intention of um, making a real positive impact locally um, and maybe beyond that around food justice and food sovereignty. Um, so the folks that we're dealing with are looking at food and farming as a means to really bringing equity um, and health um, and wellness into their communities and wealth. Um, so we, um, anyone over the age 18 can apply to farm school. Um, we wish that we could accept everyone that applied, but um, we don't have the capacity. Um, so we accept a cohort of about between 20 and 30 people um, every year, and they go through two years worth of programming. So we have classes that we run um, and everything from the foundations around um, the food system and um, the systemic racism and the systemic issues that are creating the inequities in our communities around food and health and wealth. Um, that's kind of the, the underpinning, the foundation for the courses that we offer. Um, and then upon, on, on top of that, we layer in information around popular education in the, in the hopes and the, with the intentions that people coming into farm school are going to be going out into their communities and, and spreading this knowledge. Um, and then all of the, all of the regular skills you would imagine that 
that an urban farmer or a rural farmer might need. Um, so there's a botany course and the irrigation course and a crop management course is going on right now. Um, we also have an animal husbandry course that's happening right now. So the biggest difference is that you know, you can tell by what I'm wearing that it's like 90 degrees here in New York right now. It's quite hot. It is definitely the, the, the height of the growing season. And um, our students are not out on farms and gardens where they typically will be doing their coursework. Um, so about, I would say, 65 to 70 percent of our program programming happens on farm, hands on um, with an instructor who is also a farmer, um, really doing hands on skills. And then the other 30 percent ish would be done, you know, in a classroom setting. Um, all of our courses happen at night uh, or during the day on the weekends when people who have working or working jobs other than agriculture um, can attend. So the biggest difference is that because of um, the you know restrictions around gathering in larger groups, we haven't been able to get out into the farms and gardens with a whole cohort of classes as we usually would, um, and we're doing a lot more of this as we all are. Like we're doing a lot more Zoom. Um, so there's a lot a lot of gatherings around that. Um, so that is the biggest like just surface programmatic you know difference that you would find is. We're all on Zoom um, and we're doing our best that we can around that. Um, but one of the most important aspects of farm school is um, in, in um, really channeling and, and, and doing honor to our mission around um, addressing the systemic issues that under, are undergird and create inequities in our food system. Um, that means that we center in particular black and brown folks, um, low income folks, um, people, um, you know, who have been more um, disproportionately um, marginalized as a, in regards to maybe their sexual orientation or gender identity. So we center those folks in our programming with the, the knowledge that the people who are most impacted negatively by the, the systemic inequities in our food system and in our system in general um, are the closest to the solutions. Um, are the, the, they've experienced the problems the most. Um, they really know the inner workings of those problems and they are best equipped um, with support often. And that's what Farm School believes that we provide um, to develop solutions to those issues and to those problems. Yeah, there's so many things that you touched on there. I want to maybe start with the focus on health and and uh, gardening and farming. Uh, what do you teach your students there about those connections? Oh, the connections between health and gardening in particular? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's so much more than just the food we eat. It's like that emotional feeling of, of hard work in the garden and, you know, being able to taste what a real strawberry actually tastes like again. So there's that joy, too, that that brings you health. And I feel like we need to be, you know, especially through COVID, so aware of the the isolation that that's bringing to us and and you know how how can we figure out ways to to find that health and many people are starting their own gardens right now in their backyard as a way to connect to the earth instead of to each other and uh anyway what what does health and and farming and urban farming mean to you well to to address your your question around like what we teach our students around kind of um health and wellness and farming it's funny, this gets to kind of what the core of farm school is about. And um, they teach us so many things. They teach each other so many things. And that's really one of the foundational tenets of farm school is this 
the sense of, and I, I mentioned in, in, in passing, like popular education, you know, um, and what I meant by that, the, that in that shorthand, is the sense that there's a whole um, history behind this methodology of, of education, and it comes out of labor organizing in South America and um, farm workers' rights and things of that nature. Um, the the core idea from it, at least um, the value that we've we've really held up and gleaned out of it, is this idea of one, everyone's an expert of their own experience. Right. And so when you're creating space for learning to dismantle that hierarchical expert kind of culture, which is, you know, in so many ways grounded in like white supremacist kind of like dogma around like, I know best, you know, who knows best? This one person knows best and this one person or one class of people, uh, has, um, dominion over all knowledge in this, you know, right. in this world or all knowledge that we want to, you know, honor and respect. Um, and dismantling that and saying, no, that's actually not true, right? We all have lived experience. We all have knowledge to share. Um, and especially when it comes to something as intimate as um, bodily health um, and, and, and food, you know, things that are so universal to just what it is to be alive. Um, we all have some lived experience and knowledge of that. And, you know, our role at Farm School is to create the space for, um, for that to be exchanged and shared and lifted up and celebrated, you know, especially given who we center. Um, many of the groups that we center have been really um, ill-served by traditional education, right, in so many ways. Um, that uh, that whole um, that whole idea of classroom setting is really some, to some folks is intimidating, off-putting, dehumanizing. How do we how do we get away from that, and so that we're not talking about um, you know this kind of very hierarchical approach, and we're really talking about. Um, this person next to you knows so much. Let's find out what they know and how do we all build upon the knowledge that we have together. So that is a long way of saying we don't teach them anything. <laughs> we, set up, we set up an environment and, um, and a space for, for us all to learn together. It's about um, and that doesn't mean that some people have lots of like awesome scientific knowledge, you know? Um, maybe it's, it's Western knowledge, maybe it's Eastern, maybe it's indigenous, you know, there, there's so many different ways of knowing that we want to like celebrate and bring in. Um, and so there's no exclusivity over, you know, what, what we're valuing or bringing. Um, so that feels really important to bring into the space, especially around farming, because you ask anybody who has like a degree, some kind of degree in agriculture, like, you know, that's been farming for some time, what they learned and often what they'll say is like, um, going to school taught me how much I didn't know. And then I went and I farmed and I started to learn. Like I learned from the land. I yeah. learned from doing, right? Experience, for um, sure. I learned from other farmers. I, you know, I'm still learning. This is my 10th cycle. And like, you know, this is a lifestyle. It's a life's, it's life's work growing food and, and getting into that right relationship with land so that you can listen deeply enough to, to get to get to learn to get something out of it um, so I really look at what we offer at farm school as a primer and all of that you know so much of what we want to do is like to prime people for how um, how to sit still and listen you know um, how to be on land so that you can learn from it um, the humbleness that comes with that um, and then infusing them also with this like this deep, hopefully, 
um, this deep faith in themselves in terms of their own sense of knowing, you know, so that um, that they feel confident going out and saying, you know, this is what um, this is what I know, and I want to share this, you know. Um, I think both of those things need to be um, held, at least in people who I admired most and learned from most. I think those two things were held in concert. You know, a sense of like real um, humility to be able to listen and keep learning and knowing that there's more to learn and the sense of um, I can step into this space. You know, I have things to share and to say and um, that generosity of spirit to get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I have no idea what it looks like to convert an empty lot into a garden and, and that transformation that must take place. I mean, can you describe that for someone who's never, and the work involved, you know, and everything that has to happen to have that happen, how long it takes to, to bring health back to, you know, soil that's been compacted and dead? Right. Oh, boy. There's so many people who've lived this story over and over in, in my own history and in the history of my city. Um, I myself have never done this, this alchemy. Um, I have participated in that and I've only ever seen it done in community anyway. I've never seen one person do a lot from scratch. Um, I would love to hear that story, but that's not the story I've ever really experienced. I've always heard and seen this done in community. Um, and it is, there's so many hurdles to it, you know, um, I think about um, one of the people who I never got to meet in their in their lifetime, um, but uh, Hattie Carthen, who is um, was an incredible advocate um, here in Brooklyn, where I live now, in Bed Stuy, um, for urban agriculture, urban open space, environmental justice, way before her time in the '60s planted um, trees, magnolia trees throughout our, our neighborhood um, and was really critical into bringing um, gardens, inspiring gardens and bringing Heidi Carthen Community Garden to, into being community farm. And that was a vision that she and her neighbors had and really worked in community to make that come to fruition. So. In urban spaces, one of the biggest issues is access to land just in general. So um, unfortunately, um, there are many, many spaces that are vacant in New York City. There are spaces back in that, in the, in Hattie Carthens days, there were places that were um, abandoned um, by um, landlords, by um, city agencies, and these plots of land were just, um, not underutilized and also health hazard. I mean, there are a lot of things um, that were halfway burned down houses and um, lots and lots of dumping happening, um, industrial and chemical dumping, as well as just objects and glass and things like that. Um, and it was a real detriment to the community. Um, and certain communities, in particular low-income communities of color, um, had disproportionately had these kinds of spaces. Um, so communities got together. They, they hopped fences, you know, they, they cut chains, um, they freed the land to get in there and to start to clean it up and to just recover it. Um, often without anybody's permission, without anyone's, you know, um, say so. And that was by necessity because they'd often lobbied, advocated, written letters, called, you know, 911, all of these types of things to try to get some agency to just clean up the space and weren't getting any movement on it. So why not? Why not step into that space and do what needed to be done to reclaim it? Um, so 
That happened all over New York City, especially in the 70s um, and early 80s, where folks were just, depending on the, it didn't matter the size of the space, but um, were just going in and doing what needed to be done to just make it so it wasn't a health hazard. Um, and then looking at the potential of what it could be. You know, um, so many of the communities where that was happening were um, communities that were heavily, heavily immigrant influenced. So in particular, in my um, lived experiences around the Lower East Side of Manhattan, where, is, where I'm from, Lower East Side is calling <laughs> us out. Um, so the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, was kind of ground zero for a lot of the community garden movement um, in the 70s. And uh, so many folks, especially from West Indian heritage, so folks from Puerto Rico, from Dominican Republic, um, in particular, folks um, who, through the Great Migration, so black folks who were coming up from down south, my mom was a big part, both of my parents were parts of those migrations. So right around that time, my mom was coming up from Alabama. Um, she, you know, needed a job. Um, and the, the um, apartheid that was happening down there at the time, that horrible caste system that was happening in the South at the time, really, um, even with her college, you know, education, did not have a lot of opportunities for her. So she came to New York. Masses of people were doing that through the 40s, 50s, 60s, um, who had grown up on farms, who knew how to farm didn't have the space, right? So as they're cleaning out these, as they're reclaiming these spaces, as they're just making them not a health hazard, um, they're also seeing the potential for growing. Um, and that's how these these gardens started to come to fruition. Um, so people started growing on them. Um, and then suddenly, uh, after some years of people growing and creating these beautiful spaces of folks having like bombas and like building casitas on the, on the, on the land and things like that, often without anybody's permission, um, slowly the city started to pay attention. Um, they started seeing that there weren't as many violations happening, you know, there weren't as many health hazards happening. They're wondering how they could, um, either, co-opt this movement, I would say, um, or, or figure out some way to bring it into regulation, um, but started to really develop different programs to, um, to give some licensing, to give some permitting to those gardens that had already, you know, really been liberated and, and, and done from scratch with very little fun, no funding at all, um, other than crowdfunding, um, by communities. Um, so now what we're looking at in New York City is we have, um, upwards of 600, 700 community gardens in all of the boroughs of New York City. Many are um, under the auspices of um, the Parks Department here, um, and they have licenses that allow them to um, to grow food and um, you know community within that space. Um, there are um, still significant boundaries, troubles, barriers um, within that system that we're also working to dismantle. Um, as a farmer, uh, one of those things has to do with um, allowing people who are farming on community land and providing totally uncompensated ecosystem services to the city, right? Wastewater management, um, soil remediation, uh, so many things that we're offering um, in those spaces that no one's getting paid to do, but it's, we are all benefiting from. But a lot of the licensing agreements that um, people have with publicly held land don't allow for farmers to make a profit off of what they're growing there. What? I know, look at your face. That's insane. Like, that doesn't make any sense. No. I just assumed a community garden could have a farm stand. They can't have a farm stand. 
but they, they have to give the food away on it. People can't, they can't make a profit on it like you would out of a, like off of your farm, right? Like your family farm. That's not allowed under the current laws and current regulation, the current licensing in New York City. And there are a lot of stipulations around that. You can have a farm stand, um, but you can't really, um, like I said, you know, build value-added businesses that like pay living wages and actually kind of go to individual people. You can you can bring that money back into you know um, building out that particular community garden, but it pro- basically what it does is it prohibits people from making a living wage and making a living as an urban farm farmer if they're doing so at a community garden that has kind of park space. Is this um, something there's a lot that... of limitations around that? There's some ways some workarounds, but it's very discouraging. And what we need is to encourage people to go into this line of work and to encourage like innovative thinking so that we're not only building health in our communities, but we need to build wealth in our communities. And the last thing we need is to have restrictions on how people can do that. I'm just Um, really blown away by this because there are all these places that are maybe more rural that have this community land and you can rent spots very similar to maybe what a community garden was. And somehow you can have a business on those community open spaces, but not in an urban situation. Well, I can only speak for New York City, okay. so I don't know what the <laughs> That what just the seems like we need to work on that one. Are in other spaces. Um, but that's certainly the case here. Yeah. And I, I, I know of, you know, of, um, organizations, nonprofits that are working within the system and are finding workarounds that can sort of make some sense. Um, Operating within a nonprofit structure helps with that um, because officially you're not making a profit anyway, right? Um, But for cooperatives, for other, other business types, other enterprise types that I feel shift power and build equity within the food system um, so that we're not um, kind of constantly hand out with philanthropic dollars, like that's also um, not the best way to build equity. I mean, it is a way, but I, I want to be able to support other ways. So if you're talking about an LLC or a cooperative or other types of enterprise structures, there are really big limitations on what they can do in terms of earning income off of public land, off of the commons, as we would call it. Um, but I would argue you know, not very eloquently, but I would argue that we really need to look at the commons um, as a, a way to step up um, and to to counter the inequities that are already existing in, in our society. Um, and so if we're if we're limiting the ways, let's be honest, when we're talking about real estate in New York City and in most cities, it is virtually impossible to be able to pay a market rate for land so you can privately hold land in the city and farm on it. It's not going to happen. Like everywhere. Whoever has access to do that. <laughs> Anywhere close to markets, you have a problem. Anyone who has access to do that, right, there's a, probably an equity situation there, right there, embedded in that, right? They obviously have some, you know, some uh, at, privileged aspect to be able to do that. So it's a- automatically, you know, countering what we're trying to do when we're talking about low income, black and brown folks being able to do this work. Um, so if the only option, which kind of legally is the case now, is to have privately hold held land, that you basically buy at market rate or you try to find someone who can afford, it's just, it totally leaves everyone out. So if we're not using the commons, that means we're leaving out the most marginalized people. 
that's a problem. And so I think that there are, you know, legislators within New York who are, who are sensitive and understanding of this particular predicament and want to make some movement around it. And now is the time, is what I'm here to say. I mean, I'm hoping that we can make some movement on this soon. Um, I, you know, we have people graduating every year from farm school who have dynamite, innovative, really interesting ideas that they want to do in urban spaces and rural spaces and peri-urban spaces. Um, and I don't want them leaving the city to have to, you know, to try to pursue them. Yeah. And one of my personal little battles locally is that the open space conservancy uh, and actually the local government doesn't recognize a farm unless it's greater than 15 acres. And I'm making a living on three. And I know people that make a living on one. It's crazy. So I talk about how productive you can be on such a small area and how. That's so insane. I mean, half of the farm, more than half of the farms in New York State, I'm not talking about New York City, New York State would not be eligible. <laughs> Based on that, we have tiny farms. Well, this is the East Coast, but you know, we have tiny farms here. Um, so yes, how productive can you be in a small space? Um, very. You know, I will answer the question directly first, um, and then remind me to get back to um, just kind of addressing the question in, in a general sense of why. Um, I think that particular lens is not the only one to look at. But yeah, I mean, we can be incredibly productive on a small piece of land. I think when we're talking about um, agroecology and some of the indigenous ways that people have been growing in food forests and, and other intensive growing um, methodologies and, and ways in, in past um, and the ways that we've um, done even more evolution around that, uh, especially in urban spaces in, in modern day, um, it can be really, really impressive, the amount that we can do. And that's not even taking into account, you know, hydroponics and all of these other kind of newer um, ways of growing. This is just growing in soil. Um, the things that we're doing around vertical gardening in urban areas is really dynamite and is really maximizing the space that we have. Um, and I think that, you know, we're blessed to have um, a climate that let, lets us grow for much of the year. Um, we're really doing a lot around um, season extension um, and all of these kind of tenets of agroecology, tenets of you know what we call organic agriculture. Um, those are intensifying the ways that we can produce more food for more people um, and a greater diversity of food and more nutrient-rich food um, within smaller spaces. And obviously that's critical as we're talking about climate change and we're thinking about um, the incredible impact uh, that agriculture has on, on climate change um, in, this, in this world, um, we really need to think about how we're maximizing um, the, 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 the places that we're growing on. Um, and there are so many ways of doing so, just looking back at those indigenous roots and what we've been kind of building upon over time. Um, so production Definitely, we can do that. We can do that in urban spaces. We've done that in urban spaces for millennia, um, I think is another thing that we have to really be thoughtful about too. Um, nothing is new in terms of urban agriculture. Um, people have been growing food in cities since the beginning of time, since the beginning of cities anyway. Um, and this is not a new trendy thing that we're trying out here. This is how poor people the world over have been feeding themselves um, and increasing their food security um, for for since ancient times. Um, and I would also say <laughs> around production, and it's, it's um, 
production is so important. I'm not trying to say it's not. Um, but I, I am wary of the question only in that if that's the only criteria that we're judging by, um, judging agriculture by, we're, we're going to be led down a very dark path. You know, um, there are so many damaging things that have been done in the name of production, in the name of volume, in the name of scale around agriculture. Um, in modern days and historically, um, you know, I would say that the whole reason my people are in this country has to do with this very skewed idea of what progress looks like, what production looks like, what, you know, um, that whole kind of framework is um, very problematic or can be. Um, there's nothing wrong with, with trying to maximize what you have, uh, but not at the detriment of everything else. So I think that's how industrial agriculture kind of, kind of, that, sprung into being um, and the, the monocropping and the, you know, kind of the more destructive elements of commercialized agriculture grew out of that drive for production. Um, so there's so much else, right? Um, we all celebrate it. Everyone who's in this movement celebrate those things. So uh, what is the actual nutrient makeup of the food that we're growing? Like that matters, right? Um, that matters, you know, and as much as production, as much as volume. Um, what are the ecosystem services that we're doing um, through our farming, um, through our land stewardship? That matters just as much as it does how much we're growing. Um, and the, the efficiency in the ways that we're using water, all of that matters. Um, so when I see grants that are like, you know, talking about just measuring how much produce we're, we're putting out on our farms, I'm like, okay. And there are other environmental services. There are so many other community services that are being done around education, around wealth building, around, um, you know, kind of just building sovereignty that we need to also, um, use as metrics. So I know you know that, but I wanted to just no, it's good. put that in. Especially even like subsidies per acre. It's like, I'm sorry, but the 20 buck per acre subsidy isn't helping me over here on three acres. You know, there's so many injustices the way it, everything is set up. Um, I'm curious why you support the Real Organic Project. When you speak, there are so many similarities. Um, and and so I, I'm actually really drawn to... Um, well, I'll just explain the story, what happened. So we were told at the National Organic Standards Board that the reason why hydroponics had to be inorganic um, is because of urban agriculture. And, you know, we really want to include urban agriculture in the organic movement. And because of that, you should really kind of rethink the way you're defining organic. And I'm just curious out of those, you said how many hundred gardens that, you know, community gardens, how many of them are hydroponic? Oh, my, none of them. I mean, that's not the, the, oh, okay, let me back up and be careful. <laughs> uh, I have no bone to pick generally with hydroponics at all. Right. Um, I believe we need so many different solutions. Our, our food system is so jacked. Like we just need, we need yeah. more allies and more solutions. And if they are, you know, if, if they're thinking about, um, environmental justice, if they're thinking about, um, systemic racism, if they're thinking about some of the other issues around inequities that are, um, rife within our food system, then we're on the same team. I agree. So it's not hydroponic in and of itself that I have yeah. any issue with. Um, and hydroponics and aquaponics are also ancient growing mediums. These are, these are not new technologies either. 
Um, that's the other thing is indigenous folks, you know, have been practicing those on, on almost every continent for millennia once again. So this is nothing new. The ways that we're doing it now, some people do it in different ways. Some of those ways, you know, have more issues around, you know, chemical inputs or whatever, but there's so many ways to do it, the wonderful ways to do it. And um, I, I think it's fine. I don't know any community garden that's doing hydroponics, you know, current on any, on any massive scale, let's say. The majority of community gardens are growing in soil. The majority of urban farms in New York currently are growing in soil. Um, that is just, first of all, it's the most accessible way to do this at this point. Uh, there's much lower startup costs around that. Um, so it's usually how people come into this work. Um, and um, so that's, that's pretty clear. Now, if we're talking about, okay, who, who made this comment? Let me just back up here again. Was that the USDA you said? It was made several times uh, at the National Organic Standards Board where this oh, issue was coming up. And, you know, of course, there are all these farmers there saying, you know, well, soil is the way we grow our fertility. And this is the definition of organic farming. And as long as you label it hydroponic, we don't have any problem with it, but it's not an organic exactly. way of farming. And exactly. so, you know, uh, and what was told back to us is that we want to be able to in be inclusive of urban farms. Okay. And the reality was this was Wholesome Harvest and Driscoll's, these massive Thank industrial corporations that were redefining organic and saying it's the small urban farms that we want to make sure we include here. Thank you. Right, because that is, that's not my experience of what urban farms look like in New York City, the majority of them, the vast majority of them. And the issue is that the hydroponic farms that do exist, um, and I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not as clear about who is certified organic or not in New York City, but I will say that they tend to be... Um, more well resourced, right? Because I said it's like it's a more it's it tends to be a more capital intensive startup cost to do something like this. So usually there's some kind of venture capital or some kinds of additional capital that's put into that, and that means they might have the bandwidth to do more lobbying. They might have the bandwidth to do more, you know, to have a louder voice in this. Um, and then when it comes to back to my comments around production and volume and like what what metrics we're using, um, those metrics if you look at some of these or these organizations, these companies, they'll talk a lot about volume, right? Because that is what is convincing to people who are very interested in, um, in volume and scalability. And, and oftentimes our government is also really interested in that. So I think those things kind of get skewed. So it ends up seeming like um, the dominant, you know, um, voice of urban agriculture ends up, you know, being these kind of hydroponic or, or you know, kind of organizations and it has more to do with their access to power and the access to resources to speak and be heard at those levels. Um, so I don't know how many actual community gardeners were at that meeting, but probably not that many and urban farmers. Um, and I think, again, like my issue with this, I think why I appreciate the, the, the Real Organic Project has to do with the sense of um, it's not that, that hydroponic is a bad thing at all. It is a thing, and I think that we need it. I'm an urban, as an urbanite, I think it's important. I think it's an important part of this mix. Um, I don't want it outlawed. Um, but I, as a consumer, I want to know the difference. I want to know what I'm eating. Like, <laughs> I don't think that that's a difficult argument to make. Um, and so that's how I'm looking at this. It's a, it's an issue around labeling. And, 
I, I don't think that there's any detriment to that um, in terms of hydroponics. So I'm willing to be, to be in conversation around that with folks who feel differently. I really am because I want to learn. I, I, there might be aspects of this that I don't quite understand. But um, to me, from a consumer standpoint, I don't see anything wrong with knowing. I want more information, not less. Um, and I don't see how that will um, necessarily mean that there's less urban agriculture um, in general, I know that it will not be, um, and less hydroponic urban agriculture. I don't see why that would be limiting in any way. Um, and there's also this, the positive aspect of it, which is like, I'm a soil nerd like every, like so many others, right? Like <laughs> right. I grow in soil. I love soil. I feel like my body is made up, you know, of soil, which it is. Um, I, I, I look at it as, um, kind of like an ancestor, you know, a soil is old, old, old. It is to be cherished. It takes so long to create a layer of topsoil. I am not the scientist. When you interview them, you ask them that question because it really takes hundreds of years to make one layer of, of um, you know, our growing soil. Um, so think about what that soil has experienced, right? And honor that. Like I don't, I really do look at it as my ancestor. Um, and this is something I learned from one of our teachers at farm school, a, a Oof, so glad, happy to give her a shout out. A beautiful farmer, um, so whip smart, uh, Lori Clevenger from Rising Root Farm was talking, she teaches irrigation for us and she was talking about how water is an ancestor for her. And I was like, ah, oh, yes, it is, right? Water even more so because um, water recycles itself in a much, in a much, you know, quicker cycle than soil can or ever will. Um, and it really is like what we have is what we've always had on this planet. Like we're not making any new water. It's just, it's the same stuff, um, that the dinosaurs were bathing in, we're bathing in now. So I love thinking about that in terms of, um, the respect and the reverence we need to give to, uh, what we are made up of and what we are dependent on to live, um, air, water, light, earth. Um, so I love the Real Organic Project in, in that um, it celebrates this ancestor of ours, this soil, um, and looks to protect it and honor it and like lift it up and, and knows that it takes work, like stewardship, to, to keep it fruitful, you know, and it's so, so easy to deplete it, you know, um, so easy. Within two, three years, it can be gone like that with the wrong kinds of practices, agriculturally speaking. So, um, yeah. Yeah, it's critical. Soil is so much a part of it. And it's also really the story of the corporate takeover of the organic label. And it was started by those small family farms. I remember Elliot Coleman once told me, if you just have some seeds and a shovel, you're on your way to sustainable farming. And, uh, you know, it can be really simple. And so many of those hydroponic facilities just have so much money behind them. So there really was a huge lobbying force there. And so, you know, it's, it's about kind of not being able to get my farm products into the marketplace anymore. Some of that is because of the hydroponic influence, but some of it is because it's just the systems now that the grocery stores are using to create shelf space don't include me. And so I, I want to talk with you a little bit about certified organic and how that's excluding many small farmers and where it's failed people. What you know, what instances doesn't it work for people? And, you know, do we need a new word? What can we do about where it's failed people and how it's failed people? So I'm going to have to speak more from a consumer standpoint on this than 
than anything else. Um, I am a crazy plant lady and definitely a gardener. I have more tomatoes than I know what to do with right now, but I am not a, a farmer that goes to market at all. Um, so I'm not um, working within those spheres. Um, and for the most part, farm school is dealing with very newbie farmers, just beginning farmers. Um, but I do, you know, um, definitely um, am in relationship with farmers um, who teach our classes, um, who are operating in the same landscape that you are. Uh, many of our students go on to farm um, commercially and are, are in that space as well. Um, and I also have, you know, um, professionally worked on boards and things like that that really are digging into these issues. So I do know somewhat. Um, and I will say, from a consumer standpoint, I really feel like the label has been problematic because of exactly what you've said. Um, it is a marketing tool, um, and it's not as interested in the original ethos around organic agriculture and agroecology, which I've used a couple of times, which you know I haven't really unpacked the word and how I use it. Um, but for me, agroecology kind of frames what my understanding of some of the original impetus around the organic movement was, uh, which was definitely, 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 no doubt grounded in growing in soil, um, growing without pesticides, without chemicals, with using um, really valuing, that's the heart of organic agriculture is, is the soil and um, how you feed the soil, not the plant, right? That, that ways of growing, which um, are so, you know, um, based in so many ways um, and honor our indigenous roots around agriculture and um, really have um, brought those to the fore in that way. Um, so again, so much of what our ancestors were doing, um, rethinking that around ag um, agriculture, and that's kind of what gave birth to the organic movement. Um, and for me, part, part and parcel of those tenets around protecting the land and protecting the earth and protecting the water and runoff and things like that also had to do with protecting the people. You know, I think that what agroecology um, brings back into the, um, or what I think the organic movement has lost sight of um, as it became more a label than a movement uh, is the sense of um, holistic, like whole, just like thinking holistically about our world um, and not just thinking about the planet, but also the people, right? So the whole social justice aspects of things, the whole labor rights, farmer rights, you know, um, the, the right to a living wage, the, all of those things are missing from the organic label altogether. USDA label has nothing to do with any of that. Um, and that's not, um, I believe that that was um, part of the intention because the original idea behind this movement and my understanding and what agroecology still clings on to was holistic thinking about how we're living on this planet, <laughs> you know, in community with other organisms, in including humans, including other humans, right? So like the ways we treat people on the planet are key. How do we honor those relationships? That was the original impetus behind it. When the organic movement kind of came through, this is before my time, but when it came through being more systematized on a national level, that's my understanding when we started to like pick away at parts of it, right? Um, to compromise, to like make it acceptable and palatable to people all over the country and to large agricultural producers because all that consolidation was starting to happen around that time, right? Um, so how do we build a big enough tent to, to keep, you know, in, industrial and commercial agriculture in, in this tent? Um, and then we lost so much in that process. 
Um, and so that's what I feel is, is missing around certification. I, I still appreciate it. I know that people are doing incredible work around um, really ensuring that the standards are up to point. Um, it depends on the certifier to some extent, you know, on where you are in this, in this, in the United States, which is unfortunate. Um, but some certifiers do a really great job in going out to farms and really making sure that they're doing, they're dotting their I's and crossing their T's around all of the actual regulations that are there around chemical fertilizers and, you know, crop rotations, all the things that are necessary. Um, line by line to be a certified organic producer, but that that spirit has been lost from that label. Um, the spirit around the real protecting the planet, not just like how much can I get away with and still be within regulations, right? Right. But like the real intentionality around it is not policed, you know, as part of that that label as consistently as as I would like, um, and. That's part of the problem, right? So I think um, that issue, the social justice issue is a big part of it for me. Um, not every label, you know, I think that there are really interesting um, types of labeling coming up that are, are trying to address that around labor issues. And, oh man, I'm not going to remember. <laughs> you have to cut this part out because I don't remember the name of it. Uh, what is a, a something certified... Certified Justice. Oh, the Agricultural Justice Project, AJP. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there are movements, there are, you know, some developments that are people are working in coalition to try to bring some of that ethos back, especially around labor issues, um, like with the Agricultural Justice Project. Um, but that's not consistently being thought of um, at all um, in the USDA label. So it isn't giving me as a consumer all that I would like to, to know um, in terms of what I'm buying. Um, I just, there's a lot of, there is some level of uncertainty there around things that are not covered by that, those regulations. I don't think there's enough clarity around that in the general public for the general consumer. I think the beautiful thing is that the organic movement isn't gone. Right. So we do have to differentiate between the label and the movement. This is true. This is true. There is still a movement. I'm, I'm going to just accept that. <laughs> there is. Sometimes there I'm out. Is. It might be. Sometimes I feel like it's a little fractured, but yes, there is. And um, I think we need to hold tight onto the, the values that are shared um, and to keep talking through the, the differences that there, there are in terms of things that some of us want to lift up more than others. Um, I definitely feel like issues of equity are still a sore point. I think labor issues are still a sore point in the organic movement. They're still, um, I think farmers are hurting so much. <laughs> I think small farmers are hurting so much um, that it's hard to think holistically sometimes when you are underwater financially, when you're losing your land. You know, it's hard to think about all those labor issues and, um, and the fact that there are just scores of people, primarily black and brown folks, that are wish that they could be in that position, as tenuous as it is, but like have no access to land, have no access to capital, not even, you know, uh, the subsidies that are being offered, even if they are a disservice to small farmers. So like, I think that it's hard to kind of keep that full picture in mind when, when you're suffering, but we need to, we have to. And I think those are the only ways that we're going to move forward this movement as if we're really thinking about how we can build a stronger coalition, um, by keeping, um, everyone's rights, 
um, uplifting everyone's rights so that we can, there's no other way that we're going to be able to kind of um, face the forces that are against this movement unless we're doing it together. Yeah, you're really speaking on the importance of of really standing together and coming together. And I know so many people want and do make the right choices themselves, but how important is it that we work to build a movement together as opposed to just going out there and say, well, I make good choices. Voting with your fork? Is that what you're getting at? I'm saying that's important, but I'm saying we need more. I'm wondering if you agree. Yes, 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 I do, I do, I do. Um, voting with your fork works if you have choice. Not everyone has a choice, you know? Um, and that's what's missing from that idea. It's a place, a place of privilege to be able to say, oh, I'm gonna have this and not that. I, I have access to this and not that. The way that food apartheid works in this world is that many people don't have those choices and um, many people don't have enough information, not for any lack of interest um, and knowledge on their own part, but just the lack of transparency in our food system don't have the knowledge to make those choices, right? Are like desperately looking for that knowledge, but there's no transparency in that. So they can't track where it's coming from and who it's coming from and how, um, although they'd like to make more informed choices. So, you know, voting with your fork works if you have, you know, resources at your fingertips in terms of the money to make a choice um, and the knowledge, like infinite knowledge around what you're actually buying, which none of us really do, um, not the way it's working right now. Um, so those are the two problems around this idea. The other problem is that, to your original point, it's not enough, right? Voting with your fork doesn't get at the systemic issues that undergird this entire system. It just makes small tweaks in terms of how we're operating within a system that's already broken. So what we need is to advocate for a new system. What we need is to say this one is working great for industrial agriculture as it was meant to, perfectly functioning system for folks that are already in power. It's not working for small farmers. It's not working for black and brown folks. It's certainly not working for farm workers. It's not working for restaurant workers. You know, um, in the back, in the back of the, of the, um, enterprise, there's so many people that this is not working for, um, because it was never meant to work for us. Um, so looking at the choices that they're giving us within the system that is not meant for us is not enough. <laughs> we need to look at ways that we can rebuild the system, dismantle the system, create alternate alternatives, like real alternatives to the system so that we don't have to make these false choices and that we can make true ones, informed ones. It's really helpful if we're able to make them by, you know, um, growing our own food, <laughs> I would advocate for, or um, cozying up to people who are growing food. Um, these local, um, regional networks that we're building are a really important aspect of that. It does allow us some more transparency in the food that we eat, um, and it's important to bolster that. Um, and there are other ways too. You know, there are other ways that we that we can look to create alternatives to the system so that we have real choice and not these ones that you know are are pushed at us through um, the current channels of our food system. Wow. For me, you are a huge leader, uh, and I know for many others 
at Farm School NYC. Um, you're just a really powerful voice in this movement for me. Uh, who are some others that have affected you and who should I go seek out in addition? Oh my gosh, so many people every day. I feel like I'm, I'm talking to incredible, powerful people. So, I mean, there's just my ancestors who are amazing. You know, my, my own personal family line of, of farmers who I mentioned and lifted up at the beginning of this, like my grandma, who I can't mm, watch a TED I mean, talk by your grandma. What? <laughs> I can't watch a TED talk by your grandma. Oh, you should. That is too bad because she would have been phenomenal. <laughs> well, you'll just have to keep telling me um, stories. Well, you can't. There are a lot of people who, you know, Ted wasn't around for, Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, like they're just dynamite. You know, for me, obviously, I'm so inspired by black women um, who have walked this path before me and, and so much um, more dire circumstances in some ways and succeeded and just did, made amazing changes. Um, within their communities and, and within our food system in general, um, changes that are still paying off, um, hopefully through people like me. Um, so there's that. But of contemporary folks that are out there doing amazing work, um, there are so many. You know, my own um, personal, um, my own personal mentors. Definitely, I have to say Karen Washington. I will not be the only person you interview who says her name, um, but she has been an incredible light in my life. She, uh, Lori Clevenger, both of those women I met um, very early on in this journey for me, um, really made space for me when I didn't know a whole lot about this movement at all, didn't know anything about farming other than what I watched my grandma do, um, and really um, showed me the way in a lot of ways, especially through our work together through Black Urban Growers and the Black Farmers conference, which is something that I worked on very earlier on in my career, um, it really showed me a couple of things. One, just like the importance and power of caucus spaces for, for Black folks, um, and that wasn't my background or experience at all. I was much more, um, you know, indoctrinated and used to integrated spaces and um, really saw the power and the need for, for that in terms of... Um, shifting power and building agency amongst black folks and just organizing together like um, both of them are pretty um, critical for me in terms of just like turning me on to that and opening space and just being patient with me and in my learning journeys around that um, then and now um, and always probably um, so i want to lift up those two names for sure um, I also um, think that Shirley Sherrod is an amazing, amazing um, woman and advocate and farmer and organizer. Um, I got to meet Shirley Sherrod a, a few times, um, especially when uh, she did a, a keynote at NISOG uh, when I was working there. And um, everything that she's done since has been so amazing and so inspiring. And I'm loving what they're currently doing in terms of building kind of collective wealth and education around uh, the farm um, that, they're, that they're building down south. So I think that's wonderful. Um, I think of Savvy Horn and all the work that they're doing around Ayers property. Um, I, I, I can't even start speaking and start leaving people out. Um, Malik Akini is, is does, doing amazing work in Detroit where I have a lot of family um, and um, is so inspiring. Um, and New York can learn so, so much from the work that they've done there around food policy and working um, really uh, around advocacy and policy on a local level. It's been dynamite. Um, 
So constantly feeling like I need to sit at his feet. Um, and so many of the folks that I'm working with here in New York um, State um, are um, just inspiring and exciting um, collaborations that we're doing now uh, with Farm School and organizations like um, Northeast Farm, Farmers of Color, uh, Lamb Trust, NIFOC with Stephanie Morningstar, who um, is a rock star, and I feel really um, honored to be able to work with. We have Penniman at Soulfire Farm, who I'm sure you're speaking with as part of this. Um, it's so amazing um, and it's so generous uh, with knowledge and time um, and platform. Um, and Dennis Derrick from Corbin Hill Farm Project is um, also just an amazing uh, mentor and, and person that I really look to for a lot of knowledge and experience. Um, uh, Olivia, I'm just going to list all the people I love. Do it, do <laughs> Olivia it. Olivia Watkins from Black Farmer <laughs> Fund, who is half my age and twice as smart as me and is doing such, such um, visionary, visionary work around the Black Farmer Fund and looking at collective ways of financing with patient capital um, Black Farm enterprises in New York State. Um, I really, I mean, I really, I really could go on. So maybe I should just stop there. Um, there's so many people. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wish I would? Um, well, I mean, one of the, the questions that we had talked about before was like, what, what am I spending more time doing since I have so much free time now? Yeah, <laughs> right. Where are you uh, focusing all that energy? Of, I did. I did recently step off of two boards and I do that has freed up some time for homeschooling as all the parents are doing right now, right? Um, yeah. Don't get me also, started. <laughs> huh? Don't get me started. I am not a good homeschooler. Oh my God. Oh my God. Thank God for my husband. Oh, praises be. But um, yes, I have been spending a lot more time, um, thankfully and excitingly, um, as a board member of this new nonprofit called the Black Farmer Fund here in New York State. And so the real vision around uh, the Black Farmer Fund is to build a thriving, resilient, and equitable food system uh, that's grounded in um, Black uh, food entrepreneurs. Um, who are working across all different parts of the food system. Um, so grounded, obviously, in the foundation of our food system, which are farmers, so grounded in black farmers in New York State, um, and also just looking all along the value chain um, at distributors, at trucking enterprises, at um, retailers, at, uh, you know, looking at cooperatives and things like that, markets, um, restaurants, catering, value-added, all of those, everything um, that, that is related to food and farming, um, really looking at um, how we can bring uh, blended capital. So again, looking at both grants and loans and investments um, and bring that to folks that have traditionally been totally underserved by our traditional um, lending opportunities. So, um, so many of our um, new farmers are not really eligible for some of the products that are currently on offer by USDA, our farm credit. Um, some of our um, food entrepreneurs are so new in their space um, that they are not able to get kind of traditional bank loans around that or too undercapitalized to really get that initially. Um, how do we bridge that gap to get them in a space where they're really kind of really fully living into the vision that they have for their enterprise? Um, so it's 
super exciting, not only because of the end goal and the purpose, but also the process. And so what makes us different is that um, this Black Farmer Fund is actually a community investment fund. So that means that it's not just, you know, high, wet, high net worth individuals that we're going to and venture capital that we're going to to get big money to put into this fund, but we're going to our community um, to invest in this fund, no matter how much you could be accredited or a non-accredited investor, you could put in as little as $5 and you're within this organization helping make decisions about who we fund. Um, and that is the game changer. So many times people are interested in investing in, in black um, entrepreneurs and food system, things of that nature. Um, that in and of itself is not particularly new. Um, but what is new is who's usually making those decisions? You know, is it just a small board of, 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 of CPAs and MBAs who are making the decision in a small room and saying this, this product, you know, but not that one? Or is it a group of people who are black farmers, are black restauranters, are actually people who are doing these businesses, have lived experience in it and can say, this is a great idea. I know this will do well. We should invest in this. Or I know the barriers this particular enterprise is going to face. And if they don't get funding for someplace like us, they're probably not going to get in anywhere else. We, this is a gap that we need to fill. Um, so that's what's different about this fund. You can hear how energized I am about it. I'm super excited. We just started um, with a pilot program of 20 different um, food system entrepreneurs um, from throughout New York State who are coming together to build out our collective decision-making um, process um, and then actually make decisions on our first round of funding, which we hope to do in 2021. Um, and we're hoping to do um, three to four deals where um, those black food systems entrepreneurs who um, you know kind of are selected will be um, given funding um, up to fifty thousand dollars for their food system business. So really excited about that. Still fundraising for it too. So um, definitely looking for investors to come into the fold on this. Um, but I really think that this is uh, what we've been missing in in this field. Um, as an educator who's working for people who have dynamite business ideas around food and farming, this is, this is the gap. Funding, capital, startup capital is a huge part of it. And I'm so excited that we're building this new option for them. I'm assuming people can donate land. Well, see, that's where our, our, our um, partnership with NEFAC Land Trust comes in, the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Um, and in general, like we're really looking at um, there are um, black and um, BIPOC, black and indigenous um, people of color led organizations that we're working closely with in the Northeast and the New York State in particular to really serve our population in a more holistic way, you know. So farm school alone, we're doing, you know, I would say a really wonderful job. Our faculty are teaching and mentoring this new, you know, group of folks that are coming into the space so well, um, helping them build up business plans, helping them with the actual technical skills. Great work. Then they graduate and then what happens? Um, does farm school want to be in the, in the position of, you know, um, of a land trust? 
you know, do we need to grow in that way? I don't, we don't need to because there are organizations that are already doing this work that we want to invest in and bring, you know, support to, to do the work that they have the expertise to do. And we work in partnership with them. So for me to be able to say after a, a person graduates and they have their business plan and they're ready for it to say, okay, Black Power Fund is, is about to do a new round of funding. Let me help you get that together, your application together for that so that you can get that funding. You know, NEFOC just got it, you know, as a, a new, you know, roster of, of land that's been donated to them. Um, here are some options and work with Stephanie and her team, you know, to think that through throughout the Northeast. That is how we build alternatives to the system that currently exists, you know, um, so that people who are most marginalized and have not been getting these opportunities have ways in, dedicated ways in, so that they can really step into the space uh, with power and legitimacy and voice and like, you know, and that support that they so desperately need. Um, yeah, so that's what I'm really excited about. So if you want to donate land, yes, we want to hear about it. Uh, we will, especially if it's in the Northeast, uh, definitely we'll hook you up with Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Um, that is the work that they're doing and they're doing it in such a smart way, um, really looking at um, how we're working with um, Native communities and indigenous communities around that land, the original students of that land, looking at ways that there might be kind of cultural easements around that, looking at, um, you know, cooperative um, and collective ownership structures around land, just really turning around our traditional um, look and valuing of land in this country in a way that I think is uh, much more in tune with um, the change we want to see in the world. Absolutely. Thank you, Anika. You're a busy woman. Thank you so much for giving me your time. My pleasure. This was really fun. I got to put on some lipstick and, you know, like think about um, things you even in a, painted in a much your deeper wall. and like broader way. So it's a lot of fun. And um, thank you for getting me out of my sweats on <laughs> during quarantine. I Appreciate still have them that. on. <laughs> Here's the sweats. <laughs> well, actually, it's too hot for sweats. It would have been something probably inappropriate. So. <laughs> I appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing at Real Organic Project. I really am a fan of them following it. I believe in the work that's happening there. I believe consumers really need more information. Um, and I believe in soil. So I'm just so happy that y'all are still out there doing this work. I'm so lucky. It's a good job. I get to meet everybody. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Real Organic Podcast. We hope that you like what you heard today and will subscribe, tell your friends about it, and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you found us. A video version of this interview, as well as the full transcript with links related to today's conversation, can be found at realorganicproject.org forward slash episode 15. Please join us next time for an interview with Kat Taylor, a banker and philanthropist focused on deep systems change to bring social and environmental justice into our communities. To find a real organic farm near you, visit realorganicproject.org forward slash farms. Mm -hmm.